If you have a Bible, open to the book of John. We're going to be in John chapter 12. If you're new or newer to the Bible, uh, the Bible is like most books. There's a table of contents right up front. So John is in the New Testament, which is like the second half of the Bible. And if you're not even sure kind of where that's at, you just go to the table of contents, look for John, uh, just like you'd think it'd be spelled. Uh, and we're in John chapter 12, and you can follow along with us. If you don't have a copy of the scriptures, we put the text up on the screen so you can follow along, but we would recommend that you get a, a, a Bible of your own that you can have and read and bring it here. Uh, you can also get, uh, there's a lot of different apps, the Uversion app's one of my favorites. Uh, you can use that right on your phone or smart device, device and you can bring that uh, with you. So we're, we're going to be in John chapter 12 as we continue in, um, in our series. Let me, let me pray for us and then just ask God to help us in the next few moments here together. Father in heaven, we love you. And God, we thank you for the women in our lives, God, that you've put there um, who care for us in just such a um, significant way. And God, I do pray today um, for, uh, for comfort and encouragement for these women and all the ways, God, that you're using them and have used them, um, God, in the way that you work. And I pray that today would be a special day of honor for them. God, as we come to your word now, um, God, we are praying uh, that you would help us. God, we want to um, be able to see and to be able to hear from you clearly. And God, we want to be able to cut through just the noise and the distraction, uh, the stuff that we've brought in here with us, the anxiety, the stress, uh, God, the, the places where our mind would wander. Uh, God, we're just asking that you would give us a particular uh, focus on you and on your word. And God, that you would indeed speak to us. And so I want to just invite you, if you're watching online or if you're in the room, that you would just pray that really simple prayer. Uh, I know we, we stop and we do this every week, but I think it's just really important um, that you uh, would ask the Spirit of God to speak to you precisely and directly. Uh, so that this would just not be a moment where we're going through motions and we're just doing something that we uh, think we're supposed to do, but that God might actually use this moment to speak to us in a really intimate way. So let's just stop and just pray uh, for that right now. God, you say about your word that it's living and that it's active. I trust that. I believe that. And God, I'm asking for it to be living and active and working right now by the power of your spirit. So Holy Spirit, would you come? And Jesus, would you speak to us? I pray these things in your name. Amen. So in our last chapter, in chapter 11, the uh, religious leaders of the day here, they've made Jesus public enemy number one. So Jesus disappears into the wild, and as the Passover, which is this high point of the Jewish calendar, begins, the entire nation descends on Jerusalem to celebrate God's liberating of his people from slavery. And there's a certain kind of buzz that's in the crowd about Jesus. They're just wondering, like, well, is he going to show up? We heard about what he did with Lazarus. Do you think Jesus is going to come back? Do you think he's going to be here? And our section this morning opens with Jesus going to a place called Bethany. And Bethany is a suburb of Jerusalem. It's about two miles away from the city. So if Jesus is, in fact, looking to preserve his life, he wouldn't be going uh, there. But Jesus doesn't run from danger. He marches towards it. And our hero 
enters into Bethany, and when he gets there, he stops at a friend's house for dinner, which I think is pretty cool about this story, that you could actually have Jesus over for dinner. That seems fun to me. Um, and this dinner party, if we look at it from some of the other Gospels, it tells us that it was most likely at Simon the leper's house. And attending this dinner are Martha and Mary and Lazarus, who we saw back in chapter 11. Uh, So if someone ever raises you from the dead, the proper thing to do is to throw a dinner party for them. Um, And and the power of really what's happening in this moment um, is that uh, Lazarus was the only living male relative, which is what we were able to draw from this text. And if that was true, if he had died, it would have meant that Mary and Martha would have been set on a course of a really destitute life. So in many ways, when Jesus raises Lazarus back to life, like we saw in chapter 11, he's really saving the life of Mary and Martha. It's an important detail to note as we look at the story. Look at John 12, verse 1. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus raised from the dead. Here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor, and Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. And then Mary took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume, and she poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Now, what Mary's doing here is not something that was on the itinerary for the party. It's not something that was planned. But in the middle of the dinner, this Mary, she thought, well, Now's the time. Now's the time when I have to do something for Jesus. And Martha's serving. Lazarus is there at the table, the scripture says. And Mary steps forward, and she begins to engage in this ceremony of anointing the feet of Jesus. And you could read that, and even if you're not familiar with the story, you would probably think, well, why is she doing that? Because it just feels like a really awkward moment. It feels like something that would make just everybody really uncomfortable, And the text gives us two reasons. One, because Jesus raised her brother Lazarus from the dead. She had stared into the empty mouth of death and watched it swallow that which she loved most dearly. And when, you, and when it looked like the grave was going to win, Jesus shows up and he brings forth life. And for some of you, that's your story. For some of you, you hear that, you're like, that sounds just like my story. It looked like my life was going to be choked out. It, it looked like death would get the victory in my life, and Jesus showed up and brought you to life. Some of you in the room are watching online. That's your story. Your testimony is that. And when that's your story, when you experience being brought to life by Jesus, it stirs up a certain affection. It stirs up a devotion. The other reason is this. Jesus says, she's anointing me for my burial. Now, it was not uncommon for people to use really expensive perfumes on the bodies of uh, uh, decaying or or dead people. But, But Jesus is still alive. But Jesus explains, he said, this is about my death. Now, Mary doesn't know all the details of the death of Jesus. She doesn't know everything that the death of Jesus will accomplish for mankind. But I think she knows that Jesus just came to Bethany at a very dangerous time for for him. And I think that Mary has picked up that the giver of life is about to give his life. And when she sees that, it overwhelms her. Now, we don't know if this was premeditated. We don't know if it was spontaneous, but she goes and she grabs the most expensive thing that she has. John uses very particular words here. 
he, he describes it's, it's pure nard. It's expensive perfume. He, he wants us to see something. Now, when he mentions nard, he's talking about the particular root of a tree, and the, and the nard, or the spike nard sometimes it's described, is the root where the smell is the strongest and where it would be the most expensive. It's pure, meaning that there's no additives to it. It's the, it's the best that you can get. And part of what made it so expensive is how you had to get it. It had to be imported from northern India. Uh, and, and the text would later tell us that it's worth about 300 denarii. A denarii is a day's wages. So this means that this perfume, this bottle of perfume or ointment is worth about a year's salary. So I want you to think right now, what in your house could you go and get that's worth your year's salary? I was trying to think about this last night and I was like, I really don't have anything expensive. This is, I'd have to bring like a lot of stuff together. And she takes it, and she breaks it open, and she pours it on the feet of Jesus. And then she wipes his feet with her hair. Now, now get this, if you're not familiar with the custom or the story or the culture there, it's really not typical for a Jewish woman to wash feet. A Jewish woman would maybe do this to show affection for her husband, maybe her children, maybe out of respect to her father, but washing the feet of a house guest was a very lowly and embarrassing thing to do. This, this was something that a non-Jew slave would typically do. And so as this kind of scene starting to unfold, it's like, okay, Mary, like, seriously, couldn't somebody else be doing this? What you are embarrassing yourself right now. And, and not only does she wash his feet in this kind of uncommon, embarrassing task, she lets her hair down and she wipes his feet with her hair. Now, for a respectable Jewish woman in this culture and at this time, letting your hair down in public was extremely scandalous. It, 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 was, it was almost like a sign of prostitution. Like, like loose hair meant that you were a loose woman. And the apostle Paul, he would call a woman's hair her glory. So in, in this culture, a woman would normally keep her hair kind of bound up. I'm doing this like I know what I'm talking about. A, a, a woman would normally keep her hair bound up and up. And, and for, uh, for, for a man, for a husband, kind of the most exciting part of the, of the wedding night was that he'd get to see his wife's hair down. So things have changed a little bit, but, but, but here Mary takes her glory and she lets it down and she wipes the feet of Jesus. Now when she does all this, she's sending a message and the message is that the best that man can make in this ointment and the glory of women is meant to be brought to the feet of the giver of life who will give his life for us. And when that happens, the room is filled with the fragrance of worship. If you want a picture of what Christianity, this life of following Jesus, is supposed to look like, this is it, that, that, we, that we come with all of our life and we give all to the one who gave all for us. Now, does Jesus need this? 
Like, does he walk into the room and he's like, where's the perfume? Where's the ointment? Does he demand it? No. But do you think he appreciated it? Do you think he valued this? Absolutely. I don't know how many of you moms or grandmas got gifts from your kids already this morning. I hope you did. Um, my kids are still at the age um, where they are making gifts for my wife, and it's cute. They're, they make little handwritten cards and pictures and other things. And to be honest, most of the time, um, it's not very good. Um, <laughs> My daughter this morning had taken a mason jar that she painted uh, and then put a handprint on it and then wrote Happy Mother's Day. And she was like, this is what I'm giving mom. I was like, okay, what is that? Like, what, you painted a jar? But, um, <laughs> but to my wife, to my wife, these things are priceless. Now, she could never sell it on Etsy or eBay and make any money, but she never would. But that's really what's kind of happening here. And that's what following Jesus is. That's what Christianity is all about. Like, if you're kind of newer to all of this stuff and you're wondering, why do these people all get together? Why do you do all this? Like, why spend your kind of Sunday here? Is it, is it because of the musicians, because of, like, how talented they are? And they are, and they're amazing. But that's not really enough. Is it because somebody up here might say something motivational for your life? That's a real gamble. Um, <laughs> is it because of the room and the sound and the vibe and the feel? And all that's amazing. We've got super talented people who make all this stuff happen. But it's not enough. Because all of this stuff, like all of what I'm doing, all of what we're like bringing when we come together, is like my kids' like drawings and crafts. It's us coming to Jesus saying, look, we're so overwhelmed with the giver of life who would give his life for us, that we want to do the most natural thing. We bring the best that we can as an offering. And it has flaws, and we're messy, and I'm broken, but our hearts are full, and we just have to bring our best. And when we do, I believe it makes God smile. And so get into the scene here. Don't just kind of read over this. Get into the scene of what's happening here. Mary's here, the perfume's out, the hair is down, the room is full of the smell of this expensive ointment. And Judas, who's one of the followers of Jesus, speaks up. Even in this beautiful scene, you have somebody who's totally missing it. In the middle of all this, Judas objects. Listen to what he says in verse 4, chapter 12. He says this, one of the disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected, why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. The other thing to know, Bethany is a, is a really poor community. So for her to break out a year's wages and to dump it out like that, even in that community, would have just been like seen as a massive waste. He did not say this. John gives us a little clue on him. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As a keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put in it. He says, we could have sold that. We could have made some money on it. And what Judas shows us here is that it's possible to look into the face of the giver of life and still have your heart beat with the love of money. It's possible to sit in a room like this, uh, filled with worship, and have your heart beat only for yourself to still be thinking of yourself. 
But what Judas does, and I think we can do this too, is that he masks the greed and he masks the self-centeredness in something noble. He masks his greed with this kind of concern for the poor. And I know as we're reading this, Judas seems like a bad guy, but I want you to consider for a moment that you'd probably agree with him if you were in the room. Understand, this is really uncommon. You just don't pour out expensive perfume on people, especially perfume that's, youth, that's worth a year's wages. And so when Judas says, you could have done something with that, everybody else would have said, yeah, that's actually true. In Matthew's gospel, it says that the disciples who were around were indignant, meaning they were like, why is she wasting this? What are you doing, Mary? What are you thinking, Mary? And I think all she's thinking about is where she would be and where her brother would be without Jesus. And in light of all that, she's thinking, I need to show Jesus how he is worth all of this. What is the best I got? How can I give it? How can I pour it out? And where others say, Mary, it's a waste. She says, no, it's worship. It's a waste. She says, no, this is worship. I give him my best. When you serve the living God and when you know what he has done for you and where you'd be without him, when you think about the ways in which Jesus has led you and provided for you, you should never let the voices of the culture or the room that you are in keep you from giving your very best. And Mary does what looks so strange because she's so captured by what Jesus has done. And if I use my imagination to see what's happening here and I try to kind of put myself into the scene as if I'm actually in the room and kind of staring at it and seeing it all unfold, I see everybody's busy eating. They're there at the table and Martha is busy because it's Martha. She's always busy. She's always serving. Lazarus is there reclining and eating because he's a man. It's what we do. And if I'm in this scene and I just see Mary, I just imagine she just can't stop staring at Jesus. I, I just I I kind of picture her like sitting on the floor, like her legs kind of curled underneath her. She's got one hand like on her chin. And she just can't stop staring at Jesus. She's just so overwhelmed. And in her mind, she's thinking, I can't believe he's actually here. I can't believe he came back. After he called Lazarus out, I thought I'd never see him, especially everything that's going on around about him. I thought I'd never see him again. I can't believe he's actually here in my house. The one who called my brother out of the grave He's in the same room as me. And she's not even eating. She can't eat. How could you even think to eat when Jesus is there? Can you even just imagine that scene? In John 7, 12, 7, Judas and others are indignant towards Mary's behavior. Jesus says, leave her alone. I love this. The voice of Jesus breaks through the judgment. And he says, leave her alone. Look what he says in verse 7. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. 
It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You'll always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. Now, he's not denigrating the poor. He's certainly not teaching us to avoid our care for the poor. Nobody was more about justice for the poor and overlooked than Jesus. We just, we see that all throughout the gospels. He's telling Judas, you have your whole life to help the poor, but you have to get this moment right, Judas. Judas, don't miss the gravity of who you are sitting with and what I'm about to do. What he's teaching us is don't try to be the hands and feet out there without having your heart right with me here. Jesus doesn't dismiss the needs of the poor. He's not anti-compassion for the poor. But in this moment, he's giving intention to the worship that Mary is engaged in. It's important to note Judas was the thief in hindsight, But in the room, he made sense to people. He was in charge of the money. They trusted Judas. They thought he's the most fiscally responsible for all of us. He sounds like he cares for the right things, but he's a liar and a thief the whole time. You see, Judas was in, he anticipated that Jesus was going to take over Jerusalem, that he anticipated that Jesus is going to bring this political kingdom. He would be a political leader to overthrow the government and the Jews would take over the Romans. But now, Judas is starting to have his doubts and his ambitions as he's attached to Jesus and he's decided that if Jesus can't get him to where he wants to go, I might as well make a little bit of money on the side. And so he steals and he kills and he destroys. And so beware of the Judas mentality where you're with Jesus because of the fringe benefits, but you actually don't want him You can be the person that does the most for the church. You can be the person who's up front and all of the people see you, but you don't have love. And Jesus sees that Mary is giving the greatest offering that she could, and in light of the greatest offering that would ever be made for her. It's like Jesus is saying, Judas, how could you possibly put a price on what my substitutionary death will do for all mankind? How could you possibly put a price on that, Judas? So Christian, what act of devotion is too extravagant? What act of devotion is just too much, just too over the top for what we've been given in Jesus? Because you see, that what was different about Mary, her worship. Worship is a word that comes from uh, a word meaning worth. It's essentially seeing the value and the worth of something and responding to it. And worship is not just something that happens in the church. You worship things all over the place. And Mary seems to do that here. And there's a, there's a freshness to the aroma of Mary's worship because I think for so many of us, our worship can, can feel kind of stale because we just go through the motions. We're not really worshiping. We sing, we read, but we're not really encountering God. But when we can engage with who Jesus has been to us and at the same time focus on the presence of Jesus, that's when worship becomes fragrant. And Mary here has the ability to drown out the noise to drown out them haters, and and give Jesus her absolute best because of who Jesus is and what he's done. You see, true worship is when we don't see how I could possibly give God anything less than what he's given me. True worship says, how could I possibly bring something less than what God has given me? But you see, sometimes we kind of apply this earthly system of economics to our worship. Like we have this kind of like opportunity cost of what it's going to be. We love that God gave us 100%. We love that. 
We sing amen, hallelujah, praise God, right? I love that Jesus laid down his whole life. I will sing about a God who pursues us through human history, who will break every chain, who will climb over mountains, who will light up the dark, who will tear down walls, who will stand in my place, who will take on the cross, who will pay it all, who will set me free. We are all in on singing those songs. Jesus, you get all the praise for giving 100% for me. But you're going to have to really do some convincing if you want to get 10% back from me. So I'm like, 10%? Where'd that number come from? That seems like a lot. I'm going to give what works for me when life is working out. I'm going to give what makes sense if I've got an extra bottle of nard in the closet. I'll give some, but it's very rare, if I can be honest, where any of us, myself included, can totally say with full integrity, no, I'm all in, 100%. There's no category that I'm holding back. But this is the extravagant worship that Mary is showing us. The 100% that Jesus gives is responded to in this audacious and to the people around ridiculous way. It's a life saying, I want every part of my life. I want every category of my life to honor you, Jesus, to make you famous and show the immeasurable value of who you are in all of my life. The apostle Paul would say to the Philippian church, whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. And what is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I've lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ. Now you got to clue in on who Paul is here. Paul's this great influential person in the Jewish world. He had achieved the highest status. He had power. He had position. And he gave it all up that he might gain Christ. He said, all this influence, all this power, this is a distraction for my relationship with Jesus. And all the people in the Jewish world might think that I am crazy for giving up my prominence and giving up my influence. And you might even see it as a great loss, but I see it as great gain. Jesus would talk about it this way in Matthew 13. He said, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field and a man finds it. And in his joy, he covers up that treasure and he goes and he sells everything that he has and he goes and he buys that field. Now, this is a wild story. So a man's just out walking. He sees a field with a treasure in it and he goes, uh, I hope nobody else has saw that. And he covers it up and he says, you know what? I'm going to sell my house. I'm going to sell all my stuff so that I can buy that field. And while he's doing that, people are like, hey, dude, are you crazy? You got a house. You're going to go buy a field? You already got a house. You're selling all your stuff just to buy a, a field? And he's like, you don't, you don't understand the treasure that I have seen. You don't understand what I've discovered. And it looks crazy. But the incredible thing that he has discovered is a treasure. And Jesus says, that's what it looks like in my kingdom. That's what it looks like when you know me. When you begin to walk with Jesus and you start to see him and experience him, the beauty and the joy of relationship with him, you want to give to Jesus what you feel like he's given to you. You reflect back to him, his worth, and you love him. And what we see with Mary and throughout the scriptures is that worship is directly tied to sacrifice. 
the sacrifice of Jesus giving his life 100% for us and ours in everything we are, all of our lives in response to what he has done for us. The writer of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 13, we're just about done, would say it this way. Through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that openly profess his name, and do not forget to do good and to share with others, for with such sacrifices, God is pleased. I want, we're going to look just real quick at this because this is just a wild couple verses. Now, Hebrews, if you're not familiar with what the book of Hebrews is about, and it's, it's good to know what books of the Bible are about so that you know what these kind of verses are actually talking about. So Hebrews is a book about a teaching that was coming into the early church. And this teaching was trying to pull people back to this old Jewish system, pulling people back to law, back to temple, back to regulations, back to a sacrificial system. But the writer of Hebrews is saying, no, no, we're not going back. Jesus has set us free. Jesus is the final sacrifice. We are not going back to a system. We are not going back to religion. We are not going back to the old way of doing things. We are staying with Jesus. And so when you get to this end of this book in Hebrews, you get a kind of the background and you start to understand what worship really looks like. Because verse 15 says it's through Jesus. It's really important. Through Jesus, we've already talked in John how Jesus is the door or the gate. So when we talk about worship and sacrifice, it's all predicated and based on the finished work of Jesus. It's our lives lived out through the finished work of Jesus. He paid and paved the way so that we can come from wherever we are, whoever we are, into the presence of God. And when you can start with that reality, it's all through Jesus. All the rest of this is going to make sense. And the writer says, continually, meaning worship is a lifestyle. It's not something that we do to kind of bookend our services. It's a lifestyle, a way of life. It's the fruit of lips that openly profess his name. Anytime we say out loud the truths about who God is. I have, I have a friend who's pretty successful in business, and he gets invited to go to speak at these different conferences and these different events and stuff. And he says, I just tell him every time I'm going to speak about Jesus. And you can keep asking me, you can keep inviting me, and I know you might want me to speak about something else, like seeking my success, or what are these things are. He's like, but every time I get the chance, I'm just, I'm just going to keep talking about Jesus. And it's amazing what God does even in the midst of that. And that's, that's you, and that's me. Anytime we have an opportunity, we are openly professing his name. And when we confess who he is at any time, in any place, it's a sacrifice of praise. Even when times are tough, or when the environment is hostile. And then the writer says, don't forget to do good because God is pleased. This, this is just crazy to me. When I speak the goodness of God and do good to others, look at what happens. This, this might not affect you, but this, is, this really affected me. The heart of God, the alpha and the omega, is moved. The writer says, with these sacrifices, God is pleased. It's crazy that he even knows. It's crazy that he even notices, like it's even on his ra radar. I, I feel like God has a lot going on, like a lot to do. And so little finite broken me can say something or do something good towards someone, and the heart of the infinite creator God is moved. And the writer says it's done through sacrifice. 
Now, this is not talking about how it's seen in the Old Testament. It's not about law. It's not about regulations. This is not about earning something from God. It's not about getting God to like you or to accept you. It's because he already does. It's because when you were his enemy, hostile against him, he died for you. It's about grace. God gave us Jesus because he wanted to. The sacrifice of Jesus was all about a work of grace. So when we're talking about sacrifice, we're talking about, I want to do something that is appropriate and proportionate to what you've done for me. I want to offer something costly and precious. And so I want to look real quick at what does a sacrifice of praise look like? First, a sacrifice of praise is when you sacrifice what you want so that someone else can know Jesus. A sacrifice of praise is when you sacrifice something that you want so that someone else can know Jesus. I'm gonna sacrifice what I have so that someone else, maybe somebody I don't even know, could have an eternity with Jesus because I've seen what God sacrificed so that I could have eternal life with Jesus. And so it seems right to me to sacrifice something that I could get some resource, some time, some experience, some thing, some potential comfort or convenience so that someone could experience life with God. It just makes sense to me to do that because of what God's given me. Another sacrifice of praise is giving when you don't have enough. You see, faith says, I give not out of fear, but out of trust in the one who owns everything. I'll have what I need if I give this because I'm led by a good shepherd and so I won't be wanting. And sometimes the offering is your pain. Sometimes it's the story of your brokenness. Sometimes in the the midst of that, you're praising God, which makes no sense to the world, but it makes perfect sense to the child of God. When darkness closes in, it doesn't make sense. When you can't see a way out, but you still believe in Jesus, you, when you praise him in the storm, you move the heart of God. And you'll move the hearts of those around you. You see, everybody expects for Christians to praise God when the bonus comes in, when the deal closes, when the good thing happens. Everybody expects you. But, but, but in, the, in the broken times, in the times of pain, in the times of trouble, That's what we bring God. Some of you, you've had a real hard time shopping for mom because it's like, well, what does she, what does she need? You know, what do you get for the mom who has everything? Just ask her. She'll tell you. Um, Well, what do you get for the God who has everything? Another song, attendance at a gathering, a couple bucks in the boxes. What do you get for the God who has everything? Because I'll tell you what he wants. I'll tell you what moves his heart. It's your faith, your trust, your confidence in him. You you see, faith is what sets the sacrifice apart. Faith, the writer of Hebrews says, is what's necessary to please God. Without faith, he says, it's impossible to please God. Faith is what says, this is the most expensive thing that I have. This is what I've been holding on to, and I'm breaking it open, and I'm pouring it out for you. You see, Mary didn't just like, she didn't have like a dropper out of the thing. It wasn't like a spritzer. The scholars believe that these bottles were were sealed. They didn't have like a replaceable top. So you'd have to break the neck 
And once you opened it, you poured it all out. That's what faith says. Faith says, I am pouring it all out. Where where there is no sacrifice, there's no worship, and the sacrifice is faith. We talk all the time how we want revival. If you're, if you're a Christian in the room, like that's something that you've thought about or hopefully like you've prayed about. That's something you'd like to see. Would you like to see like a move of God? Okay, the front row wants to. That'll be great. We're going to enjoy that, right? I want to. I want to see a move of God. I want to see, I want to see revival. And revival starts with me. And it starts with you. And it starts right where you're at. And it starts when faith is brought forward and the sacrifice of a humble and a contrite heart are at the table and the fragrance of revival and the fragrance of worship will fill the room and it'll fill our city and it'll fill our world. Lastly, a sacrifice of praise is the response response of us being overwhelmed by grace. The sacrifice of praise is the response of us being overwhelmed by grace. Mary didn't do the math. She didn't do the economics. She just understood, apart from Jesus, her dead brother had no chance, and her life was on the line as well. But this Jesus showed mercy and grace, and so Mary didn't have to do the math. She just knew Jesus had to have what was precious to her, and she poured it on his feet. It's that simple. He did everything. I have to give him everything. Mary was moved by Jesus, and until you and I are moved by the grace of God and the person of Jesus, we're never really going to fully pour out a sacrifice of praise that moves the heart of God. And I know that some of you, you, you come in this room and you've experienced grace in Jesus. You don't even need a preacher. You don't even need this moment. You, you don't need someone like me. You don't need a call to worship because you are overwhelmed with Jesus. And for you, the only problem that you have is you wish, I just, I wish I had more bottles of perfume I could dump out. And the thing for us to remember is that so often our greatest moments of a sacrifice of praise are going to happen on the way to the cross as Jesus is marching towards the cross and as we march in the footsteps of Jesus towards the death of our plans and towards the death of our own agenda and towards the death of our own way and towards the death of me first and towards the death of ourselves, as we march towards that, the fragrance of our sacrifice of praise fills the room. And when we do, We know in this world there will be trouble. We don't lose heart because Jesus has overcome the world because we believe that God, who did not spare his own son, how will he not also freely give us all things? And we know that nothing can separate us from his love. You see, John has continually been showing us that your response to the offer of life in Jesus is either rejection and devotion to yourself or worship and devotion to Jesus in response to what he's done. This text is not about perfume, and this text is not about money. It's about surrender. It's about worship. A life that understands I am not my own. I've been bought with a price by the love and grace of Jesus. I have been brought to life, and I've been redeemed. And the glory and the fame of Jesus is the aim of my life, and it's my greatest good, and it's my greatest joy. And church, the only way that you can pour out everything for Jesus is if you fully understand how he has poured everything out for you.
And when you do, your heart is unlocked with worship for him. Let's pray. Father, we love you. And God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for um, the example of Mary. But really, our attention is not to be drawn to Mary. Our attention is to be drawn to you, Jesus. And what moved her heart to pour everything out is you. And Jesus, I'm praying that right now, right now, by the power of your spirit, God, you would move our heart in the very same way. I can't make that happen, but you can. And so would you do what only you can do? Let us see you. Let us experience you. Move in us. So whatever that we've been holding on to, that we don't want you to have, we break it open and pour it all out. Make us a church like that. Make us a people like that. Make me a pastor like that. Jesus, we love you. Amen.